Hello, I'm Reggie Yates, and welcome to The Road Less Traveled, an original podcast series created by Bellstar. I mean, when you're having to take care of yourself from a very young age, it makes you incredibly independent and very self-sufficient and unafraid, really, because you've got nothing to lose. So when it came time to go out on stage and your heart's hammering like, you know, it could kill a horse, <laughs> you've got to go out there. Because there is a moment in the wings when you stand there and think, I don't have to do this. Yes. I could just go out the fire exit and yeah. uh, get a cab and go home. There's something that pushes you out there despite the fear and makes you move forward and onward. And I, I feel like that's what my upbringing has done for me. It, it, it pushes me forwards and tells me not to be afraid and that, you know, nobody's better than you. In this podcast, I talk to successful people in the public eye about risk-taking, confounding expectations and the choices they've made which have led them to the place they are today. My guest today is an Olivier Award-winning comedian, hard to place with a credit list spanning decades. His presence has been felt on stage, the big and small screen, but today he's behind our mic. My guest today is Mark Strong. Thank you so much for joining me in our little uh, little wooden box. It's good to have you here. It's my absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, it's really nice. Uh, the first time I actually met you was at football. Yeah. In a, a lovely little box and, you know, we were, as Roy Keane would put it, prawn sandwiching it for the game. <laughs> You're an Arsenal fan like I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have to ask you, how did the Arsenal find you? Well, I was born in Islington and grew up there, so it was kind of all around me. I didn't have much choice. Yeah. So uh, when I first met you, I did something that I imagine a lot of people do now when they meet you. Uh-huh. And I regretted it instantly. Do you remember? No. Okay, good. Can't it didn't go that down embarrassing. It, well, it was, was it? really fucking embarrassing. And, uh, thankfully, it hasn't stuck with you because it was terrible. I went, boom. <laughs> and I expected you to laugh. And you, you sort of went, <laughs> politely. <laughs> right, 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 right. And I thought, oh, no, why have mm. I done that? Mm. But I'm sure a lot of people must talk to you about your, your cinema voiceover yeah. and how how distinct your voice is and has become over time. I think it might be stage work, you know, having done a lot of work on the stage, you kind of, your lungs get big, your, your, your diaphragm works, and I think mm. um, I've just got a voice that's got a bit rooted somewhere deep, deep down, and it works well for um, scaring little children in the cinema before the film starts. <laughs> scaring little children and black guys <laughs> from Islington as well, because I was terrified the first time I heard that. Right. Your voice and voiceover, as I said, has become something that a lot of people recognise, and mm. part of that reason I believe is because of a show that I was a part of and annoyingly you didn't voice uh who do you think you are yeah which you've done how many episodes I did about six years of who do you think you are you haven't actually done the show but I would love to know how awkward it must be for you meeting people whose lives you know intimately because you've literally voiced their life story yeah there were some amazing stories, I have to say. Um, I do remember Jeremy Paxman coming on and going, oh, Doctor, this is ridiculous. What do you do? I'm not going to cry. And then he discovered that his family were like, you know, 12 people in one tiny Victorian room and he wept like a baby. Of course he did. You know, and it's an incredibly emotional journey I think a lot of people go on. Um, I don't know why it's never come my way. I think what they do is they explore your family initially and if there's similar stories to ones they've already had, then they won't go down that path. But also there's a possibility that they hit a dead end. And my parents, are, you know, one's from Italy and one's from Austria, and they both, I think, pretty much come from fairly rural farming families. Right. So I imagine there's there's only so far back that you, you can go. Right, well, so we've taken a bit of a diversion away from our usual sort of uh, train of conversation. I've got to ask you about performing and acting. Yeah. Being a kid in Islington, there aren't many options in terms of expressing yourself creatively but you found drama or yeah. should we say drama found you how did it find you well i never did any plays or anything like that at school i never 
knew that I wanted to get involved with acting. There was no one in my family who was an actor. There was no connection. And for me, it was always people I saw on the TV or in film or even on stage. My mum took me when I was fairly young. I remember to the London Palladium. And uh, there was never any sense that that was something that I wanted to do. When it came time to go to university, my mother was living in Munich at the time in Germany. I didn't really know where to go, so I thought, you know, I'll go over there and join her. And I, I studied law at mm. Munich University for a year, which was incredibly complicated and yeah. way too difficult. <laughs> it was all in German and German constitutional law, and it was just I was beyond my, you know, out of my depth. And in the next room, there were a bunch of people doing trust exercises and things. They were all, you know, a little theatre group doing stuff. And I remember walking past their room one day and seeing it all going on in there and thinking, what are they doing? What are they up to? And I just yeah. asked a couple of questions and <clears throat> I suddenly realised that looked way more fun than anything that I was doing. And that was the in. So when I then came back to the UK, I went to university and did English and drama and made sure there was a drama element to the degree that I was able to get to do. Mm. And they had a little studio theatre... We put on plays there and, you know, I just wanted to be in those plays. I was terrible in the first ones that we did, but I stuck with it and I really got the bug. Yes. And I think once it gets its hooks into you, it's a wrap. anything, not just acting, anything, once you find something that it's effortless for you to go down that path, mm. you know, that was it. I was in, you know. Yeah. And at that stage, expressing yourself clearly was something you wanted to do. Looking mm. back on it, do you think that you had anything creatively to say or was it literally just a desire to perform i think superficially there was an element of showing off <laughs> you know and there was an element of it's a great thing to say that you do at parties i thought right. until i realized that most actors are out of work and actually mm. it's not a great thing to say that you do at parties so there was a superficial kind of element to it but much more profound i think was a realization that i had that i genuinely loved the idea of inhabiting characters you know without sounding pretentious there was something about, you know, pretending to be someone else that I really loved and gravitated to. And I'm sure over the years I've talked about it, that has something to do with a kind of eclectic childhood, moving around a lot, no father figure, no brothers and sisters. You know, I literally had to kind of take care of myself, look out for myself. I was at boarding school from a very young age. So there was nothing that was guiding me towards the kind of, you know, who I was going to be. Mm. I had to make it up as I went along. And I think what I did as a kid was always look around at people around me and just evaluate them and think, okay, I, he's a bit mean, don't like him. You know, he's great fun to be with and I love seeing him, you know. And, and just, I think I, I was aware of different characters, aware of different behaviours. I think that makeup made me the person that I am now. Yeah. But it was it was really just pinching off the environment around me to work out who I was. You know, I, I always used to say if there was a, a book, like a blueprint, I'd be great. I could just read the book and then I'd work out life and it, everything would be great. Yeah. But um, I had to sort of draw it from around me. And I, I think that fed into acting and the idea that you're creating characters and inhabiting other people's mindsets mm. that I just always used to do as a kid and then found really interesting as an adult. Uh, it's so interesting hearing you speak about your family in this way. And, uh, you know, before we actually started recording, we realised that we both grew up pretty much on the same road. <laughs> oh, well, you were born on the road that I grew up on, yeah. on Liverpool Road in, in, in London, in Islington, in North London to be precise. And um, uh, someone's start a lot of the time can help define where they actually end up going. Mm. And for me, um, Islington plays a huge part in my perspective. And, you know, the lack of a father figure has played a huge part in the decisions that I've made, weirdly, professionally. Mm. Because um, actually working with purpose and doing something that I'm proud of is a huge part of the decisions that I make today. Mm. Given your experiences and your upbringing and that 
being alone and fending for yourself thing that you mentioned as a kid in boarding school. Um, how much has that affected and or steered maybe your decisions creatively? It's probably made me quite fearless. I mean, when you're having to take care of yourself from a very young age, it makes you incredibly independent and very self-sufficient yeah. and, and unafraid, really, because the, you've got nothing to lose. So when it came time to go out on stage and your heart's hammering like, you know, it could kill a horse, <laughs> you've got to go out there. Because there is a moment in the wings when you stand there and think, I don't have to do this. Yes. I could just go out the fire exit and yeah. uh, get a cab and go home. There's something that pushes you out there despite the fear mm -hmm. and makes you move forward and onward. And I, I feel like that's what my upbringing has done for me. It, it, it pushes me forwards and tells me not to be afraid and that, you know, nobody's better than you. I remember once there was an exercise at drama school where they said, come in and talk about your hero. And I do have heroes, you know, Bowie's a hero and mm. Mandela's a hero, but I came in and I was a little obtuse in the class where I said, um, I don't really have any heroes because having heroes presupposes that they're better than you. Yeah. And the thing is, I'm not there yet. I've still got stuff I want to achieve. And as an individual, I genuinely grew up thinking, okay, we're all we're all the same mm. and we're all just, you know, doing our best. Yeah. So I think, yeah, fearlessness probably is the thing that it, it taught me. And I think when you come from very little, you, you're, it's very obvious where you need to try and get to. Yes. Not everybody makes it, you know, it's a hard journey, but uh, at least you have that drive in you to get there. I've had this conversation so many times with friends who have found themselves in a, a position of privilege, for want of a better turn of phrase, off the back of a lot of hard work. Mm. For my friends who have working class backgrounds or who are children of immigrants who haven't come from very much, that have worked their ass off to get to a position where they can look after everyone in their family yeah. and then they have kids, it gets to a point where they don't resent their children, mm. but they look at their kids and think, you don't have it as hard as I did. <laughs> and therefore, yeah. my hard work has made your life easy in a way that I don't like. Yeah. And they battle with that. Yeah. How do you manage that emotion? And is it resentment in a way? It's not resentment, but I'm intelligent enough to realize that that's bad parenting. You can't take <laughs> it out on them because that's their only perception of their life. They've got you no know? choice. It's not their fault. Yes. They're, they're privileged or whatever. So you have to try and just help them understand that having that privilege is something that they're going to have to carry and use in the best way that they can. But it's a, you know, I have to bite my tongue and stop myself doing that. <laughs> You've got it so easy, you know. I don't do it. I try not to do that. Mm. Going back to the uh, beginnings of your career, there was a decade or more, I believe, on stage for you and then a huge chunk of your career on the small screen. And now you're pretty much in like everything that comes out, it feels like. Does it feel like that? Oh, oh. yeah, but in a good way, because okay. it's like when we see or hear you, it's like, ah, oh, okay, mm. we're oh. in safe hands. Oh, no, good, good. Genuinely, and we'll get on to 1917 later, but, you know, the fact that we heard you before we saw you, right. I don't think was a mistake. Right. And I don't think that that was something that Mr. Mendez didn't consider, because it's your boots and your voice and I remember looking at my friend who I always go to the cinema with, Bubba. He's like my, my movie boyfriend. Like we, right. And we just looked at each other and nodded. We were like, yeah, <laughs> oh, we're great. in safe hands. Yeah. So that time on stage, uh, I imagine, has played a huge part in that presence that you now have on screen. Hmm. How do you tie those two chunks of your career, shall we say? They're very different, obviously. I mean, many actors talk about that. The, the experience on stage is different from film. Film is like a microscope, you know, just searching out your soul. And mm. obviously on stage, you're trying to broadcast to as wide a group of people as you can, make sure they can hear and see you at the back. Mm. There comes a point where you have to sort of be able to have the technique to do those two things. And they're, they're very different. Um, 
I think the, the 10 years on stage was invaluable because it taught you how to perform. Yeah. It taught you fear management. You know, it's scary going out there, certainly for the first few weeks or a couple of weeks of, of performance. It taught you how to relate to a live audience. So when laugh lines happen, how to deal with that. When things happen that are unexpected, how to deal with that. Mm. How to kind of sense the vibration in the air of what an audience is feeling when they're getting restless. So all of that is kind of gold dust. And the first job I ever did was at um, a place called the Worcester Swan. I did nine plays in nine months. Wow. So it's monthly rep. You would rehearse during the day for the next play, and in the evening you'd perform the play that you rehearsed the month before. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah, it was like a treadmill, but it was fantastic because uh, it was going out eight shows a week doing something in front of an audience. I think that gave me confidence. So I think when it came time to be on camera... I had a confidence born of the fact that I'd had uh, quite a hard um, apprenticeship yeah. on the stage. Do you think that that time spent in theatre and on stage gives British actors uh, an edge over their Hollywood equivalents? They are very well-trained American actors, I think, in emotion. And we are very well-trained in words and script. That's the essential difference that I seem to have found. You know, right. if you come from the theatre, you're looking at words on a page, you're obeying what the playwright has written, and you're making those words work right. in front of a live audience. American actors, often if they haven't done stage work, they're just great at being natural and using props and being real. Mm. I remember somebody once said uh, there was an actor that they asked, a famous actor, maybe it was Matt Dillon or somebody like that, you know, how, how do you do it? And he said, well, what do you mean you just do it like it's real? And there is a truth to that, mm. but there's also technique that's required on both stage and on film. I think maybe American actors haven't got the opportunity to do theatre the way we have here. You know, it's part of, uh, there were rep companies all over the country when you came out of drama school. If you were lucky enough, you know, you could go and work in the theatre. Mm. And I think in America, it's just tougher to find good theatre. So it's not their fault. And maybe that's why the method grew up, the idea of having to sort of internalise and use emotional recall and memory because, as I say, that microscope of a camera is really finding out the truth yeah. when it points at you. So you need to have the equipment to, to be believable. Mm. Whereas stage is artifice, you know, you're pretending. And I know a lot of British actors get frustrated with American actors when they're too method and they're too in their character, do you know what I mean? And they won't talk to you because, you know, off camera you're not meant to be talking to each other. British actors can just sort of turn it on. But I think that that is the theatre because one side of the... If you're off stage, you're off stage. You could be turning around going, have a cup of tea in a minute if that's all right. Then you walk on stage and then you're on, mm. you know? And we conflict between the two without too much... Well, I can. I, I suppose ultimately it's whatever gets you through the night, you know? Yeah. If you want to be method and do it that way, fine. But uh, I, th I think British actors do have a kind of technical expertise that comes from the stage. Mm. Uh, the chunk, for lack of a better word, of your career that I've neglected is, of course, television. Mm -hmm. I guess the moment where things really turned and changed for you would be Our Friends in the North. Mm. You knew I was going there. Yeah. How important was that for you on your greater journey? And what was that experience like just feeling, as a stage actor, things suddenly change and the entire country watching you on the small screen? It was huge. Most actors have a break at some point, you know, and that was the thing that got me from the stage in front of a camera. And I think the fact that it was so well-received meant that suddenly the four of us who were the main, you know, Eccleston, Danny Craig, Gina McKee and I, all became visible. Yeah. And when you have that break, I think when people are then casting around for the next thing, you're there. And if you can make some good choices, then suddenly you can find yourself having a career. So it was incredibly important for all of us. Mm. 
But more than that, I mean, in retrospect, I feel really proud that I was involved in something that people still remember that was a real state of the nation piece. I don't know if it still stands up today because I haven't seen it recently, but people still mention it and talk about it. So obviously it really figured in people's consciousness. Well, I think a part of that might be the fact that the cast have all gone on to do such incredible things. Mm. And I know you're quite close with Daniel Craig, is that correct? Mm, Yeah. Is he godfather to your children he is he is yeah my eldest yeah that's awesome um well with you being so close to daniel i imagine that you've been close to his rise and as someone who uh, what's the best way to put this i guess has has somehow with so many films under your belt Hmm. managed to retain a level of privacy in a way that so many other hollywood actors just don't Hmm. What was it like being so close to someone like Daniel and seeing things explode Mm. overnight and also seeing him get a job as high profile as Bond and see how that affected his personal life and his private life because he clearly, well, seems to be just as private as you are. Yeah. Well, it was exhilarating and terrifying all at the same time. Right. Because you do give yourself up a bit when you're that visible and that famous. And that's something I've always been kind of terrified of I've always had an instinct that if you become public property too much you lose a little bit of yourself you know and then suddenly you can't walk down the street you know you can't get on the tube you can't go and have a drink in a pub with a mate you know because people can't help themselves and in the kindest possible way they want to come over and they want to talk to you they want a selfie they want to kind of Mm. connect with you and what people don't realize is that can happen literally all day and suddenly your whole day is, is spent kind of trying to be kind to people all day and uh, you don't have a life. It, it, there's nothing about fame that is great. You know, it's bizarrely, you crave it, I think. Everybody craves fame, the idea of fame. But everybody who has it immediately wants to try and get rid of it. The work is the thing. Mm. Becoming visible and public property is not as interesting as doing the actual work. Yeah. How do you maintain a profile on screen and find a way to not have people invade or uh, find a way into your life off screen. Hmm. How have you managed that? I've just kept very private. I mean, you can, you don't have to have a publicist. You don't have to go out there and find things to publicize yourself. I mean, there is a certain element that's required for the work that you do. Actually, times have changed enormously. People are now interested, I think, in in what you've got to say and what you're doing. Hmm look at social media. I used to have a diary that had a lock on it. Do you remember those, a little book that had a little flap yeah. and a key? So you wrote down your faults and then you hid them away. Yeah. That was when I was a kid. And, and now, now there's Twitter. It's the opposite. It's literally every waking thought is is of interest to someone. Yeah. So do you, do you like push that away? I have done for, you know, 30 years I've been doing this and uh, I was always very proud of the fact that I wasn't engaged or involved with social media. Mm. But as my kids have grown up, obviously, they've introduced me to it a bit. So Instagram has come my way and there's a little page that I've set up and uh, it's not something I'm very proficient at at the moment and it's not something (laughs) I post an awful lot of stuff on. Yeah. But it's just there lurking. I'm dipping my toe in the water, let's put it that way. (laughs) But basically, I I am very private and I do, you know, my, my... Focus is my family, my friends, and my work. That's beautiful. Mm. And do you see that privacy as protecting the work in a way? Totally, because as an actor, if everybody knows everything about you, if they know what you have for breakfast, you know, they know what you're doing on any given day and they know your personality intimately, how are they going to believe you when you're playing another person? Yeah. I mean, they can. And we think of like huge stars like, I don't know, uh, uh, DiCaprio or Robert Downey Jr. I mean, we know them. So... We still buy them as characters. Mm. 
But personally, I have this notion that I want to be on screen and have people surprised that they didn't realise it was me. Yeah. Could you sort of explain and, and, and maybe unpack that element of terror that you say that you felt in watching things go mental for close friends who have found success in their career. Why did you use the words exhilarating and terrifying? Well, exhilarating because ultimately you want to be, you know, playing the parts that people are going to the cinema to watch you play. You need an audience, like I said before. Mm. So it's exhilarating because suddenly you have an audience. The terrifying element is the audience is worldwide and literally potentially on the pavement the minute you step outside of your door. And there are certain things you have to think about. You know, can you now travel economy on a plane, you know? <laughs> or do you travel business class or first class? And then what do people think of you for doing that? Because, you know, are you highfalutin suddenly that you're doing that? But then, you know, how famous are you? Mm -hmm. Can you go on a normal plane? When you buy somewhere to live, do you have to think about security? You know, do you have to put cameras up? So suddenly you're buying a place, but then you've got to factor in a whole other tens of thousands of pounds to make sure that the, the place is safe. And there's certain places, presumably, you can't live. And then you've got to think about where your children are going to school and how safe that is. So there's all of those things, if you're super famous, that I think you have to think about. Mm. Luckily, and also a little bit by design, I've never really wanted to go down that path, to be honest. How much would you say your upbringing and your background has shaped the way in which you tackle work both on and off camera? I think I'm grateful for the work. You know, I never take it for granted. I'm kind of amazed that I have a, you know, I've been able to sustain a career in the way that I have. You know, you'll know that there's no stability and there's no guarantees in this business. I mean, literally, you're always wondering where the next job is coming from, and that never stops. The chances are you might get more comfortable with the idea that there will be something, but you never know what it is. I feel like I'm lucky to be doing it, and uh, I'm sure that comes from my childhood. Yeah, I joked about the fact that, you know, you work a lot, hmm. and you're pretty much kicking out about three films a year at the moment. I mean, I went through your credits and was like, Gee, that's about three or four every single year. <laughs> Having this conversation with you, I think I'm starting to understand why. I was asked by someone who I don't actually work with anymore, and this is probably why I don't work with them. I was asked a few years ago, why do you work so hard? And the fact that they didn't understand why, mm. to me, said that they will never really understand me. Mm. And hearing you speak so eloquently about your upbringing and your childhood answers that question for me. Right. So many things came into it to answer the question that I didn't actually answer in the moment. And one of them is, I don't ever want to go back. True. Is fear a part of how hard you work? Or is it more a case of having a drive that you just can't shake because of your upbringing, because of your start? Well, actually, you're, that's very accurate. It's a bit of both. The drive is definitely there because of all of the reasons that I've said. You know, you have to have that element of, uh, of wanting to do what you do because I genuinely love it. I really love acting. People ask me whether I want to direct or write or produce or do any of those things. I'm not quite as interested in those things. Right. Acting is the thing that, I don't know, just it scratched an itch for me, I got the bug, and that's the thing that I love. So there's partly that, but there is no safety net for me. My mum lives abroad. She's sort of lived abroad since I was uh, 11. Wow. And wow. there's no other family. I've had no family in this country since then. And it sounds Dickensian and tough and difficult, but actually I never really found that. I just realised, okay, there's no safety net, there's no one to fall back on. You better make it work. 
Okay, look, character actors are probably my favorite people to watch. Whenever I get asked, like, who do you love? Who do you always go and see? Mm. One of the first people that comes to mind is Paul Giamatti. Like, yeah. I'm a huge fan of his because yeah. he just morphs and changes whenever you see him. And I found it quite funny to see lots of actors refer to themselves as character actors. And a lot of the time, it's one in five who actually are. Right. I've never heard you call yourself that, mm. but... I would, yeah. considering the breadth of work that you've done and how different the parts that you play. You know, you're a CGI bad guy in Green Lantern one minute and then suddenly you've got a full head of hair in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah. And you're a very different person. <laughs> yeah. Do you drive to be a character actor? I think of myself as a character actor. I mean, what's a leading actor? A leading actor is somebody who basically plays themselves. So you look at, say, Leonardo DiCaprio or, you know, Robert Downey Jr. I mentioned before. Those guys tend to just, their charisma and their look and who they are is mm. the thing that generally you get presented with when you see them on film. Mm. I love transformation. So when I was at drama school or when I was at university mucking around in that studio theatre, wigs, makeup, costume, accents... That was the stuff that I was delving into right, as much yes. as possible because I wanted to get as far away from myself as possible. It was always the idea of being a different character from yourself. That, mm. That's what acting was for me. And I think that's the truth. I've had a great variety of different characters, whether it's a kind of mob boss in Kick-Ass or mm. you know, Merlin the Scot in Kingsman. It's, it's always... I, I like the idea of transforming. Yeah. Well, uh, what was it like being part of that incredible cast that Mr. Mendez pulled together for 1917. It was an extraordinary filming process because normally you rehearse with everybody and you do all that. We didn't have any of that. I literally turned up the night before I was due to shoot my scene. Wow. And then the next morning I was taken to, to makeup. Mm. Um, we talked about what he would look like. I had my costume already. And then we went out into the fields and we just rehearsed that scene 20 times maybe because it yeah. was one continuous scene. Uh, and the reason you have to do it so often is there's lots going on, like in the background, yeah. there's a bunch of guys lifting a tree. A lot of blocking, yeah. Yeah. And then we had lunch and then we just, and then we shot it and eventually he got the shot and that was it. There was no changing of lenses, no close-ups, no nothing. Wow. So it was the simplest job I think I've ever done. Mm. Making a film about that subject matter is quite traumatic. It, it was really brought home to me. The props guy came up to me and he said, uh, he said, look, I've got a revolver for you. Do you want to have a revolver? And I said, yeah, yeah, I think I've got a thing here. He said, this was used by um, an officer in the First World War. It's a genuine thing. It's been decommissioned, but he went over uh, the Somme with this particular revolver. Do you want it? And, I, and that's what I wore while I was doing it. Oh. And that little connection to, to something that's very real... I suppose, kept my feet on the ground a little bit, reminded me that although we're making a movie, it's a movie about a time when people suffered in a way that we can't even begin to understand, I don't think. The difficult things uh, I think that I've experienced have played a huge part in, in where I am and, and who I am. And I am almost thankful for the adversity that I've experienced. Mm. Where does adversity sit in your greater journey? It's vital, isn't it? It's important. I think you, you learn more from overcoming problems and rectifying mistakes and acknowledging things that you've done that perhaps weren't cool. <laughs> I think you learn more than if you just have that, that easy ride uh, through thinking that everything that you're doing is great and the world you're living in is fine. I think adversity is the thing that shapes you. Yeah. This has been such an amazing conversation for me as a fan of your work and also understanding what's brought you to this place. It's, it's been great. So thank you for being so open. Just to close out, I have to ask you, how would you define the journey that you've traveled? What's the road that you've been on like? You know this, the, the title of this podcast, is it 
drawn from the Robert Frost poem. Yeah. That path that you reach in life where you have to choose which one you're going to go down. You go down the well-trodden path, the easy path, the path that's expected, or are you going to take the other route that's a little less well-trodden? I feel like that's what I did. You know, I feel that choice I made when I was younger to do law was what was expected of me and what my teachers at school would be impressed by and what my mum might think, oh, you know, I've brought up a, a fine young man. But to suddenly do that 180 turn towards a business I had no experience of, no family in, no understanding of, but just kind of instinctively knew that it was for me. I took the road less travelled. I didn't do what was expected of me. I sort of did the opposite. And, you know, touch wood, thank God, it's worked so far. Mark, genuinely, oh, I really, really yeah, love no, this conversation. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, cheers. Cool. You've been listening to The Road Less Travelled, brought to you by Bellstar. Hey.